How's that? Is that a little better? I know you guys can hear me, but the video is being fed live, and so they can't hear me. They can't pick me up too well. Uh, anyways, um, it's not a matter of me wanting to project my voice, but it's a matter of me wanting to project my voice. How's that? Okay. <laughs> uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And so we're going to cover a couple of things this morning. One, we're going to cover Paul, the apostle. And number two, uh, the will of God. We're going to cover those two things this morning. We're going to do a little bit of a background information, and I'll be filling in as we go along as well uh, on some of the things that Paul has been doing and what he has done and where he's at at this point and who he's, who he's addressing. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the coming weeks as well because there's so much information. And to be honest with you, we're only going to just introduce the book, the book of Ephesians today because I, I really want to get into, uh, at least so that you would know, the context in which Paul is talking about, on what he's doing, what he's saying, and uh, how it's coming across. Ephesians has been known as the book of treasures, or God's bank book. Uh, it's, it's, it's filled with riches. As a matter of fact, this series, I've called it, and I can't remember who it was that I got it from, but I've called this series, The Riches of God's Grace. And so the first three chapters talk about doctrine, and the next three chapters, chapters four through six, talk about behavior. And one of the things I've said before, right doctrine equals or gives us right behavior. So Paul always starts with doctrine first and foremost. The book of Romans was mostly doctrine. There was some application on it in the last few chapters. There's 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the book of Galatians were all very, um, I guess you would say, reprimanding books. They, they reprimanded the church in 1 Corinthians. He reprimanded the church again in 2 Corinthians. He loved them. This is why he reprimanded them in Galatians. He was just livid at the gospel that was being proclaimed and being brought into the church. But Ephesians is more of a, a, a softer tone letter. It's a letter that he's, he, wants to, he wants you to know. He wants the churches in the area of Ephesus to know that you have this bank book, this checkbook, this house of treasures that God has given you. And we'll, we'll touch on a few of those as we go along. And so these are the riches of God's grace. Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus and the surrounding churches from, from Rome. And in Rome, he was there only to be in prison. He was in prison for two years. And so he has a, a perspective now of what he's been teaching and what Jesus Christ himself has showed him and how the churches have responded and, and just the, everything that he has done. And, and through it all, he's come to this point realizing, you know, there is this riches. And you look, you look at uh, the first chapter of Ephesians chapter verse 7 it says in him it says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace I can just imagine Paul just in prison and, and you know just he wasn't really a prisoner per se as one that was beat and in shackles he had the liberty to have people come and go he had the liberty to write and send letters he had the liberty to to really he was being taken care of in a sense but he was bound in this prison not to go out because of the Word of God however God used that time to be able to proclaim even more so what Paul had done. And so he had this time of reflection. He had this time to himself. He had this time to really look back and he says, you know, God has richly blessed me. And I think that for most of us, 
in prison, we would not say that. I think for most of us, we would say God has richly blessed me because I've got a beautiful family. I've got a nice house. I've got a good job. As a matter of fact, some people will even come across and tell you, you know, God has really blessed you. You are blessed and highly favored because of your status, your income, or whatever the case may be. You, you have this long life, good health. God has richly blessed you. And you see, and we'll see, as we'll see today, there are some things that are a blessing that we refuse to accept. But God says those are part of his will. Those are part of his will. And as Paul is writing to us, he's telling us that there's right doctrine that has to be adhered to. And it will give you this right behavior. The book of Ephesians is the book that tells us about uh, husbands and wives, children's and parents and children, children and parents, bosses and, and employees. It talks to us about the... Um, the battle that we go through in, in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, the spiritual warfare that we're in, the full armor of God that we should uh, put on ourselves. And so it is just, it, it is a good book. It's a great book. It's a, a positive, uplifting book. And I pray that we can just dive into it and start looking at who was, Paul was writing to and what he was trying to get across. Paul, he says, verse 1. And I, I want to read, if I may, uh, the first chapter of Ephesians. It's going to take me a little bit over three minutes to read this, but follow along with me so we can get the context of what he's doing and what he's writing and what he's trying to get across. But he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redeemed, in him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, who you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you." What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that we worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and settled him and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we thank you once again for this marvelous letter. The riches of your grace that have been poured out to us and given to us because of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for penning these words through Paul in a time of most people thought was a dark time. But for Paul, it was a time of reflection. It was a time of looking into who you are and what you've done and what you have in store for us. So, Father, we pray that as we journey through this book of Ephesians, that we receive the intent of Paul's letter to our hearts, to our church, to our life. Thank you, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, and we all say, Amen. Amen. One thing that we have to review at this point is, number one, Paul. Paul used to be Saul, as you know. Saul was on his way to Damascus. Was a, uh, was a Pharisee, Pharisee of uh, the Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was circumcised uh, on the eighth day. He had everything. He knew the law. He was kosher. By all means and by all views of the world, he had it all in the bag. He was a young man, ready to go, ready to climb the ladder of success. He had everything before him. And as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, Paul, to some extent, in the world's eyes, was a failure because he threw it all away to follow this movement that they used to call the way. And this movement called the way was a, a the way, which is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as they followed the way, Paul started to see these disciples to multiply and taking people away from Judaism. Judaism was his life. And Saul was after some in Damascus had letters, murderous threats he was breathing out. That was just his, his whole demeanor. That was just his whole life. He was going to eradicate this sect if it was the last thing he was going to do. And as you know, on the way to Damascus, Jesus Christ, he encounters Jesus Christ, knocks him off his horse, and Jesus commissions him. Three years in Arabia, he learns from Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things that he learned. When we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians, we found that he was... Uh, that he was teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, and as the Lord Jesus Christ, he passed these things on to me. And one of the things that we noticed is that the Gospels had not yet been written. So it wasn't anything that Paul himself had read, but Jesus himself had passed these things on to him. And he learned these things as far as the, the, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. He learned these things from Jesus Christ himself. And so he, he laid out his uh, theology based upon what Jesus Christ was showing him in Arabia. He went out, started planting churches, went to Jerusalem to get confirmed, not to get confirmed by man, just to show that his gospel message was in line with the church in Jerusalem. James, Peter, and all the apostles, they wanted to make sure that it, he wanted to make sure that it was in line to what it was that he was teaching. They gave him an okay. 15 days later, he goes off and goes into this missionary journey, plants churches. And so that's where it begins. That's where Paul is at. Through this missionary journey, he, he stops in Ephesus and he finds people that need to hear the gospel. The gospel message is proclaimed and it is commanded that they believe. Many of them believed and they became new believers. And they were first called Christians in Antioch. The word Christian, as you may know, is not a very notable or very 
I don't know, pleasant term, I guess, back then. It was a derogatory term. You guys are Christ-like. Christianos is the Greek word. You're like Christ. You're you're like that guy that they pinned up on the cross. You guys are willing just to do whatever it takes to get this message across. And and they were making fun of him. They were ridiculing him. They crucified that guy. They spit on him. They they humiliated him. And now we can humiliate you, you bunch of Christ-like people. Well, of course, as you know, we took that name on with all honor and, and glory. And we said, yes, we want to be known as that person. That's what we want to be known as. And as Paul is sharing with them, he says, you know, there's, there's in Corinthians, we learned that Paul says, you know, I, I am an apostle. And there are a lot of false apostles Paul would talk about. And he says, these false apostles are out there. And, and they claim to come from Jerusalem. They claim to come from Jesus Christ. But in the process of building this apostleship that Jesus Christ made, there are, there are some um, criteria, a biblical criteria for the apostleship in the Bible. And when you follow this biblical criteria of the Bible, you'll come to realize that, yes, these men including Matthias, including the one that they cast lots for, that each one of these men were able to be called an apostle because of this criteria that we're going to pass over through right now. And Paul had become an apostle because of the same criteria. A little bit different. He's not a 13th apostle. There are still only 12 apostles. There are 12 apostles that are going to be on the foundation of the church when the new Jerusalem comes and the temple is established. The temple is established with the 12, not 13 apostles. But Jesus Christ commissioned Paul to be an apostle. And he was constantly having to make an argument for that. Peter, everybody knew he was an apostle. James, they knew he was an apostle. Everybody knew that these men, these people were apostles. And, uh, and so when it came to Paul, it says, well, you were never there. You know, oh, but let me share with you what has happened to me. But first of all, number one, the biblical criteria for an apostle for apostleship is number one, you had to, you had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And the, the physical eyewitness is one that saw him resurrect and be and, and see his hands and his side, as Thomas had said. It, it was one that saw and, and was able to commune with him. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, he lived among the people, the apostles, for 40 days. And it was after 40 days that he had ascended up into heaven. And he told them, and the angels told them, as you've seen him rise, he'll return again one day. That's how you'll see him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it says, so one of these men, uh, well, let, let me back up a little bit here. In Acts chapter 1, we're dealing with the death of Judas. Judas has hung himself, and so Jesus tells them to go and wait for him, and uh, wait for the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they have a Bible study, and they start looking. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, just so we can be a little clear on this, so you can see what we're doing here. Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Luke is writing this, this book, and, and, and what's he, what he says in, excuse me, in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 6, And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, and um, in verse 7, when he said to them, the Greek word for for that response that he gave is nena. He says, it's none your business. It is not for you to know 
times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the, the brothers and accompanied the people. And, and as he, uh, and he's at 120, he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Notice what they do. They go straight to the Bible. They start having a Bible study. They look back and they say, okay, what did the scriptures say? And they had to be revealed, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And so what they did is they started to look at, okay, there's got to be a, a replacement uh, because, of a, because of a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the, this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. <clears throat> and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office so they knew that there someone else had to take this man's office and so now they're 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 challenged with the responsibility of filling that office well there were a lot of faithful christians in that time there were a lot of people that that were were there that could have been a, a good witness and so what they did is they said, so then, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The very first criteria for an apostle is one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. The resurrection, though there was no one at the grave, they witnessed the resurrected Christ. And every apostle ever appointed from that point forward had to be an apostle that was, uh, was one from the resurrected Christ. When they became and saw the resurrected Christ. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, and, uh, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So he became number twelve. 
lots if you, you don't know how that happened. It was basically a, a jar with some stones or something with everybody's name on it or a signal, or some, I mean a, a, a sign of some sort of seal that had the person's identificating markers. And what they would do is they would take this jar and they would just shake it, kind of like Yahtzee. I don't know if you've ever played Yahtzee, or, you know, but they weren't playing Yahtzee. It wasn't a game. And this is how the Holy Spirit would determine the outcome of whatever they were praying for. And as they shook the, the jar or the, the canister that they were holding, one piece would fall out, and that, according to them, was God's will. That's how it was determined. Some people have asked, well, why don't we do that anymore? Well, because if you want to do that, you can go to the casino and do that, but not here. We don't, we don't gamble that way. We have the Holy Spirit now, and it's the Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us. And we have God's Word to show us what it is that we need to do. And we also have, as we'll see here in just a bit, the will of God. And so... In, in this whole process of identifying the very first thing that an apostle had to do, he had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Number two, he had to be personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this appointment came to them through this uh, the, the casting of lots. It was the lot the ca they cast out and appointed Matthias to be number 12. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 3, Verses 14 and 15, this, this is out in your outline. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. See, it's Jesus Christ that appoints, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In Luke 6, 13, it says, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now, apostles are all disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ had a group of disciples. He had hundreds of disciples following him. There were 500 that saw the resurrected Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He appeared to 500 of them. And all of these disciples, a disciple is, is a learner, a disciple is a believer, a disciple is a follower, a disciple is an apprentice. Disciples were known not only to Jesus Christ and his crew, but it was, it was a, a term that everyone used. There were disciples of Socrates, there were disciples of, of Plato, there were disciples of all these various teachers and rabbis, and of course we know that there's also disciples of Satan. So disciple is not necessarily a religious term in its sense, but it, it basically means a follower, a believer, that one that wants to listen and hear the, from the teachings of this teacher, the one that you're following. Jesus had many disciples. Out of those disciples, he chose 12, 12 of them. Now, out of those 12 that he chose, we know that one of them was the son of perdition. It was already prophesied. They did the Bible study. They, they knew he was going to be missing, and they were supposed to uh, replace him. And so out of those 12, these are the apostles that Jesus Christ himself appointed himself. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, uh, going back to verse 21 through 26, after they put forward to Joseph uh, Barsabbas and also called Justin Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry. He himself chose Matthias through the casting of lots. And, and so as we are looking at the qualifications, one, number one, he had to have been the witness of the, of the resurrected Christ, physical witness. Number two, he had to be chosen or, uh, yes, chosen by, uh, personally appointed by Jesus Christ. And number three, he had to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Performed signs and wonders. 
In Matthew 10, verse 1 and 2, it says, And he called to him twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, and there's a list of them if you'd like to follow along, see who those twelve were. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, again, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This power was specifically given to the apostles, the twelve. It was given to the apostles that Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ appointed and that physically saw the resurrected Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It was, it was to authenticate the message that Jesus Christ gave them authority to proclaim. And in order to authenticate the message, they needed to have some sort of authentication, and that was the signs and wonders that the apostles carried with them. And with great power, in Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There were these Pharisees, these people against the way, like Saul, that would go after them and corral them and, and try to force them to give up this name of Jesus. But because of the resurrected uh, resurrection power that they received and the witness that they were able to express and, and show, we were there. We saw him. This is why apostleship wasn't just given to anyone. It was given to the 12. Because what they did is they gave testimony, gave witness, gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us this, and this is in your outlines, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, there were a lot of people that Paul called false apostles. There are a lot of people that Paul called false prophets. And, and he called them these because they were in it for themselves. And we talked about a lot of the people that were in it for themselves in the book of Galatians. They, they only wanted to make a good showing of the flesh. And also they wanted to uh, try to get away from the persecution that was coming. You know, if we align ourselves with the ruling party, then maybe, maybe they won't cause us any damage. But the people in Galatians, the, the, those that were worthy of being called Christians, they stood fast. And the others, they said, well, we don't want to be persecuted either. You know, we'll, we'll get circumcised just to go along so that we are not circumcised. See, the criteria uh, of apostles today is, is, is way more than, I mean, it's, it's, this is it. And, and one of the things that, the reason I have to bring this up is because there is this movement. I don't know if you understand this or not. But there's a movement called the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Where for $63 a month, you can become an apostle. It was started in 1960, excuse me, it was started in uh, 2001. And they call this the, uh, the New Apostolic Reformation put on by a man named Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner has written a lot of books. I liked his books. I really was, was reading a lot of those when I was in seminary. And in 2001, when he became a self-proclaimed apostle, he called himself, okay, there was an apostle, Simon Peter. But now, me, Peter Wagner, I am the new apostle for this era. And in this process of trying to establish himself as, as an apostle, he became the reigning apostle in a sense and began this, this I, I don't know, this, this legend or these, this movement, which is called the New Apostolic Reformation. First of all, it's not new. 
It's not apostolic, and it's not a reformation. And what, what he's been able to do is get people to come in, and for $63 a month in, in 2012, uh, he was able to sign people up. The base fee was 350 for international apostles, and the fee for apostles living in North America began at $450 a year, or $650 for married apostles, meaning apparently a husband and wife team could hold the office of apostleship. And so we have a lot of pastors, a lot of people that call themselves apostles. But they run into a problem when they start to realize, you know, well, I, you weren't there. And, and the, the problem is, is that they have this vision or they have this idea or they have this thought or this dream that they saw Jesus. Well, you weren't appointed. Well, in my vision, in my dream or my thought, he appointed me. You don't have these uh, signs and wonders type of things that the apostles did. You know, and, and they claim, of course, you know, back healings and all kinds of other stuff. They, they claim all those things as parts of their signs and wonders. Headaches are gone. You know, arthritis are gone. The apostles, when they did signs and wonders, they did miraculous signs and wonders. People were brought to life. Those that were crippled from birth stood up and walked. Those that were blind, literally blind, and people knew that they were blind, they started to see. One guy, they tell him, it says, silver and gold, have I none? This movement of the new apostolic reformation has really taken on a big movement. And it's really just take, taking on, and you have to look at it from the, the concept of what the Bible teaches. You had to be present. You had to be appointed. A miraculous signs. And let me, let me take you to Ephesians once again. And this is in your outlines. But in Ephesians chapter 2, which is the next chapter, and we're going to touch on this a little bit more. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. Uh, and, and I'm going to start in verse 18. For, though, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. I, I like Paul's term of the saints. I, I don't know if you understand the word saint in Christendom. The word saint is basically a called out one, hagios. It's, it's one that's called out of the world. It's one that has been, uh, in, and I know it, that in some circles, the word saint has a very uh, high elevated view. They, they, they've sainted or they've given sainthood to certain people. And so therefore, you have to be perfect or you have to be pure or you have to have done so many different things in order to be a saint. And only certain people are called saints. But Paul's term for the believer as a disciple, as a believer, is a saint. So therefore, I, I can call James St. James. Okay, I'll, I'll even call him St. King James at that. Uh, St. Ryan. I hope there's nobody here named Bernard. Okay, well, that's besides the point. Anyways, the, and so saints else. Every person is called a saint. And so when Paul says this, he says... Uh, he says, for, the, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Another point that I'd like to make, and we'll, we'll touch on this some more, you know, you need to be a member of a church. You need to be a member of the household of God. And uh, we'll, we'll touch on that some more. Verse 20, this is the verse I was getting to. Members of the household of God built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Did you get that? You see, an apostle and the prophets are 
the foundation. I don't know how many foundations you have on your house, but in my house, we have only one. And I don't know how many Jesus Christes you want to put as a cornerstone, but there's only one cornerstone. See, what Paul was getting across is these apostles and these prophets, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, is what we build on. You don't need apostles. They were there for a season. They were there for a moment. They were there for a time. Apostles and prophets are no longer needed. Why? Because we have the Word of God. We have God's Word. God has spoke to us in the past through visions. Hebrews tells us, chapter 1, verse 1. And in the past, He spoke to us through, through visions and dreams. But now He speaks to us through the Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself, which is the Word. And so, you cannot lay foundation upon foundation. And we have a problem with apostles being called them. Some of these guys really call themselves super apostles. And at the end time, when the temple is laid down, I don't know how many of those super apostles are going to be able to fit in there on the foundation that's already been laid. It is going to be a very difficult situation to explain this. Yet, because of this movement, many people have fallen prey to it without even looking at what the Bible says. Now, one of the things that people point to, and they pointed it to me as well. I mean, and it makes sense. <clears throat> what, about, what about chapter 4? What about chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 11? What about when Paul says that? In chapter 4, verse 11 of Ephesians. Again, we'll, we'll go into this in detail. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. They call this the fivefold ministry, the fivefold offices of ministry. And it includes apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Well, we have pastors, right? We have evangelists, right? We have teachers, right? So we have to have apostles and prophets. And, and in all fairness, when Paul is writing this letter, the, the apostles were still there. Some prophets were still there. So God is using this to build, and it actually makes an argument for our case when he says that he's, until we attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the winds and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It is a foundational base. It's a foundational base to equip the saints for the works of ministry. For building up the body. It makes the argument for us. Foundation, let's build up the body. So what is the church operating on now? Well, it operates by evangelists, pastors, teachers. We'll get into uh, the leadership roles of elders, of deacons, of uh, overseers. And so there, there are offices that have taken those over to further on and build the kingdom of God. And built on the foundations of the apostles of God. And so when Paul says he's an apostle, Paul had this unique encounter with Jesus Christ. He even makes the argument, look, what, I, what happened to me is very unique. I am the last apostle, he tells the people in Corinth. I am the last one. As a matter of fact, I, I believe that you know, if it was up to him, he would say, I was untimely born. I should have been born a little bit sooner. You know, or, but I, this is where I'm at. And this encounter that I had with Jesus Christ, it's not the same with everyone. And you'll know that in the way that God shows up to uh, shows up for Jesus. He doesn't show up to Pilate in the way that he shows up for Paul. He doesn't show up to, to Herod or the, the rulers in Rome. 
The way he showed up to Peter, he doesn't show up to, like that to Judas. And, and so there's, there's various t- ways that Jesus Christ shows up. In the way that he showed up to Pharaoh, he didn't show up that way to Moses or vice versa. God reveals himself differently to everybody. And with Jesus Christ and with Paul, it was a totally different ministry. We will touch on that when we get to that point. But the very first thing we have to find out, we have to realize is that Paul is an apostle. And an apostle has criteria. Not anybody can call themselves an apostle. Not, nobody can just, just get up and call themselves an apostle. And so he goes on to say, you know, this is not my, by my will. If it was up to Paul, which it wasn't, he would have just kept going on to Damascus. You know, just like all of us, we no longer have masks, so we are on our way to Damascus. I've been waiting all week for that. Come on. Jeez, is that all I got? Okay. What is the will of God? Let's go on. Pastor, you're a better teacher than you are a comedian. Anyways. (laughs) That's a dad joke? You're writing it down, huh? Well, I think you're the one that told me. God's will. God's will, very quickly. Romans chapter 12, one of the verses that we go to, our go-to verse for the will of God. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. So he says that, and so present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, it's interesting because even with this verse, and it's kind of still, okay, well, how do I test? How do I know? How do I offer up my body as a living sacrifice? How do I do these things? What is God's will? How do I find it? For some people, they think, you know, maybe if I just uh, put my name in a jar and shake it around or, or these different cities and see where I'm, I got to go to school at or where I got to work. And if one of those names pops out, there's, there's God's will. And some people try to, you know, just, just try to figure out some sort of mystical way. You know, they, 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 they read a fortune cookie or they, they see a horoscope and they discern for themselves that this is God's will. I've heard many people say, you know, I don't know who God wants him to marry. Well, who are you dating right now? Well, I've got three or four girlfriends. Okay, well, first of all, you're not in God's will. <laughs> you know, you, you have to, how do I know who to marry? How do I know which job is God's will? You know, I, I want to be a missionary, but how do I know which country to go to? Some people will use something very traumatic, like, you know, walking down the street, slips on a banana peeling, lands on a, on, on a map of Africa and says, that's where I got to go. And some people, you know, because somebody comes up to them and says something really nice, this must be God's will. Therefore, I'm going to marry you. And so when we look for God's will and we're trying to find God's will, Paul is telling us right there, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I don't know if you know what a sacrifice is, but a sacrifice, well, it was burnt up. I mean, it was executed. It was killed. It was slaughtered and offered up to God. And Paul says, that's what I want you to do, but I want you to be a living sacrifice. I don't want you to kill yourself. I want you to have that same mentality. Slaughter yourself, your flesh. Kill yourself. Remove your flesh, yourself, what you want. A lot of times, the way we approach God's will is this. This is what I want. And so therefore, God, because I want it, and you promised me the desires of my heart, therefore, that must be your will. And this is what I want. And I approach it from a fleshly standpoint, from what looks good to me, on how it affects me. And Paul never operated that way. As a matter of fact, 
in Scripture, nobody ever operated that way. Nobody ever prayed for God's will. Everybody was basically in the will of God. Back of your outlines, number one. God's will, number one, is that you be saved. God's will, number one, is that you be saved. You want to know God's will? you got to be saved. There are a lot of people looking for God's will, have not yet have committed their life to Christ, have not been converted, have not been saved. Now, the epistle of the, 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 to the Ephesians, we're going to talk about predestination and, and the, the free will of man and how that combines with each other and how they work together and how salvation happens. Everyone believes that you must be saved in order to get to heaven. Everybody believes and understands we have this common understanding in Christendom that those are going to be saved are elected and predestined to go to heaven. Those that aren't saved are going to go, of course, to hell. They're going to suffer this anguish. And we know this. Instinctively, we know this. We've heard this. We've been taught. We've been going through it. The question is, how does a person get saved? And we'll talk about that later. But number one, you must be saved. In order to know God's will, you got to be saved. Not that God wouldn't give his will to an evil king or to somebody that's trying to cause harm against you. As Joseph would say to his brothers, you meant to harm me, but God meant it for good. God meant for this to happen. It was in his will for me to be persecuted, to be sold into slavery, to be hated by my brothers. It was God's will in order to save a nation. 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a very interesting verse, and we'll touch on this again as we go along. We know that God wants all to be saved. And we know that the power of the cross could save all humanity. And we know that uh, if, if God wants it to be done that way, then all people that die will go to heaven. I just came back from a personal funeral. Great man, great person, loved. You can see the pouring out of love in people that showed up. And you can see on how he really just touched a lot of lives and just his, his demeanor and everything that he gave and he did for his kids and his family. And definitely this guy is in heaven. But I know this person from personal experience, he would not listen to the gospel message. I don't need that. I'm good. I don't need that. Everyone who dies goes to heaven in the eyes of some people. That's called universalism. Because God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. What kind of a sick, sadistic God is that? That he wants people to suffer. And, and we know, again, once again, in Christendom, we realize and we know that there's some people that go to heaven and some people that go to hell. Again, but who gets to decide? Well, if I'm good enough, he was very good. And as a matter of fact, there's this prayer that they do for 10 days, and that's supposed to get him to heaven, you know? Now, I don't know his personal heart. I really don't. I don't know where he was at. All I know is that the last time I saw him, you know, we had a very good time, very good talk, and we, we just, you know, basically it was just about things and stuff. So I don't know what took place in his life. But I do know this, that you can't make it to heaven without the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only criteria. And in order to know God's will, you need to be saved. Number two, God's will is that you be spirit-filled. And only saved, genuine believers can be spirit-filled. Only those that have committed their life to Christ and committed themselves to Jesus Christ can be filled. 
And this filling that we have, and we've talked about the Holy Spirit, we've talked about how, uh, what His responsibility is, and being Spirit-filled enables you to proclaim the gospel boldly, enables you to give you the supernatural power that otherwise you wouldn't have. And we've talked a few weeks ago about the walking in the flesh, or the deeds of the flesh, or walking in the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. And the two are, are, are against each other. You cannot work in the flesh and be filled by the Spirit at the same time. You're either walking in the flesh, or you're either filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not allow you to have division. It's, it, it gives you love. I mean, it just comes out of you. Love, joy, peace, all these things that many, many people are seem to be going through. You know, they don't, there is no love. There is no joy. There is no peace. There is no kindness, no goodness, no faithfulness and gentleness. There is no self-control, but yet I'm a Christian. <laughs> I'm a good Christian because I go to church and I do good things. But there's no self-control. There's division. There's debauchery. There's sexual immorality. There's fits of rage. There's those things that just seem to be permeated within the person that you, you can see the difference. Beloved, we can see the difference. People know when you're a genuine believer and when you're not. It's like the guy that got mad because the car behind him was honking and honking. He got out of his car. What are you honking at? He says, well, it says right there, honk if you love Jesus. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, huh. <laughs> That's an old one. I'm sorry. I'm glad that one worked. Let's move on. <laughs> that one worked. Huh? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's will. He wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants you to operate under the gift of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the evidence it's not the talking or speaking or whatever it is that people do to show that they are filled with this Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit is not a spirit of confusion. The Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, those things, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things should come from, you don't have to pray for them if you're a genuine believer. You don't have to ask for them. You don't have to ask for more peace. You don't have to ask for more patience because you have it. What we need to do is stop walking and working in the flesh. And that's the problem with Christians is that we operate in the fresh flesh thinking that we're operating in the spirit. We have this righteous indignation, this righteous anger, this righteous whatever the case may be. It just causes all kinds of problems. And so people say, as I said once before, there was a guy, a couple of guys I was talking to, and he says, yeah, I go to church. The other guy says, you go to church? And I told the guy, that's not a good sign. Number three, this is the will of God. And, and these are from Scripture. This is what the Bible teaches. God's will is that you be sanctified. That you be sanctified. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification you know, being sanctified is the process that we're going through. This sanctification process, you have been regenerated. You've been born again. One day you will be glorified. This glorification, you'll be just like Jesus. And in the process, we're going through this sanctification process. And Paul is telling the people in Thessalonica, you know, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Stop it. 
And sexual immorality covers everything that you can conceive of today. You know, 50 years ago, I mean, it was, it was just adultery or sex outside of marriage. Today, it's just about everything else from videos to magazines to uh, porn sites to, to sexual all those things. Any of that stuff that infiltrates your mind, any of that stuff that you get involved in and hooked in and, and looking at and seeing and reading, any of that stuff that you watch on TV or, I, mean, I don't know if anybody watches TV anymore, but videos or, or all those things, anything that has this sexual immorality, uh, just flair to it of any kind, that's the will of God. He says, abstain. You need to abstain from that. You need to be sanctified from that. You need to remove yourself from that. You need to get yourself away from that. Number four, God's will is that you be submissive. Now, this is going to be a tough one for some of us, for some people. I shouldn't say us. I just Maybe some of you can understand this. You need to be submissive. Peter says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He didn't say church, godly, Christian, human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as set by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you can put to silence the ignorance of foolish talk. You know, again, not getting political here, but one side will say yes. The other side will say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, the next administration, the other side will say yes, and this side will say no. We are to be good citizens, bottom line. We are to submit for the Lord's glory. Turn with me to Romans 13. Some of you probably know this chapter as well. Romans 13, very quickly. This is God's will. This is what he says, for this is the will of God, that by doing so you could put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In chapter 13, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every authority. Really? Even the evil authorities? Yes, even the evil authorities. You mean God is evil? No, God is not evil. But when God allows evil, it is good, because everything God does is good. That doesn't make any sense. When we look at the sovereignty of God, everything happens because God wills it. Everything happens because He is sovereign. He is in total control. If one nation, if one city, if one man, if one person would say, you know what, I'm not under God's control, I'm going to do whatever I want, then God cannot be God. And God allows evil. He allows evil for His good. This is what happened to Israel over and over and over again. Countries would rise up and they would persecute the Israelites for their idolatry. And they would submit, they would, they would submit to God, and then they would cause evil again. God would raise up another country and another country. As a matter of fact, he told Pharaoh, for this reason, I raised you up. In our nation, I don't know if it's ever been a Christian nation, to be honest with you. It's a pagan nation. Even more so now. And God is dealing with this nation. Whether it's through the, the politics or whether it's through the social issues or what, whatever it is. But we have laws. Whether you like them or not. We have a president. We have a governor. We have a mayor. Now, we need to submit to them. 
And we need to be submissive to them because that's God's will. And you know, God will never ask you to do something that is contrary to his will. Because once these governors, and which is happening now, tell us that we can't meet because it violates some sort of state law, then we, we have to start meeting somewhere else. We'll meet in backyards if we have to. We'll meet in prison. Okay, you guys ready? <laughs> we'll meet in prison. Jan says, I don't want to go to prison. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I choose the backyard. We'll do it wherever it is that God is at. When we have a bunch of fellow believers... But when they tell me that I cannot love God anymore, then it's time to say, okay, then this, this government, regardless, and, and whatever they do, because God is going to use that in my life. If I go up against the government, God will use that in my life in the same way that he used Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had no fault. We know that. Jesus was not at fault. Yet, he was executed. He was executed by the government, and God had a purpose. That was an evil deed. That was an evil deed that God allowed to happen for His holy good. And the same thing is going to happen to us. We submit to the authorities. These are verses that some people just don't want to look at. Number five, God's will is that you suffer. Maybe another verse that many people don't want to look at. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those who suffer for doing good. You know, sometimes we'll suffer because, well, we're just dumb. <laughs> we do some dumb stuff. And we, we do dumb stuff and uh, we, we operate a vehicle which we shouldn't be operating at a certain time, certain place, certain conditions. And we get into an accident, that's not God's will. That's not what he wanted you to do. It'll happen, maybe to show you something, but God's will is not, you're not doing God's will at that time. If you suffer for dumb decisions that you make, if you suffer for those things, you know, if you suffer for the cause of Christ, this is what Paul is talking about. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. It's not a suggestion. It's not a maybe. It's a promise. Paul says, you'll be persecuted. Maybe not to the extent of what the apostles had gone to, but there'll come persecution in your life for speaking up about Jesus Christ. Maybe get fired from a job. Your, your friends and family will no longer want to be a part of your circle of influence. Whatever the case may be, there'll be persecution. Especially if you're vocal and you stand up and you tell people, look, your lifestyle is an abomination to God. And I'm trying to help you here. I'm trying to save you here. I'm trying to show you how much I care and love to tell you that Jesus Christ is the answer to your dilemma, your problem, whatever's going on. And he goes on to say, not only will you be persecuted, Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So a genuine Christian is going to be persecuted. But those who are imposters, those false prophets, false apostles, false Christians, they're going to continue to grow and go as if nothing's ever happened. In fact, God providentially governs your choices by molding your desires. 
I quoted this verse a little while ago in Psalms 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know, at, at first when Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, this is exactly what he's talking about. There's some things that you must offer on the altar of sacrifice in order to do God's will. And then the psalmist says, you know, you delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Some people read this, you know, if I love God, He'll give me everything I want. He'll give me all my desires. You're not reading this correctly if that's how you see this. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires that you need to have. Not the desires that you want. When you are saved and spirit-filled and sanctified and submissive and willing to suffer, and you seek God, then what happens is He will give you His desires. You are ready and set to make up your mind as to who you're going to marry. Now, or what job you're going to have, or whatever the case may be. And this is why in Psalms 143, verse 10, I thought that's where you were going to go at this morning, brother. <laughs> when you said, I was reading out of Psalms this morning, and I heard one, okay, almost. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Teach me to do your will, not teach me your will, not show me your will, not help me find your will. Some people look for God's will as if it was lost. Some people are like, where's, I don't know, I can't find it. The psalmist is saying, when you are saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering for Christ, the choice is easy. And many of you are waiting for the answer. So how do I know? How do I find out what job? How do I, you know, and, and I'm going to give you the same, uh, same principle and the same answer I've given to many people before. I don't think God really cares who you marry. Or what job you have. As long as it's not illegal, unethical, or immoral. It's not going up against God's laws. God will bless you. And whatever job that you take, and whatever job that opens up, and you think, you know what? In this job, I can honor God. I, I, I'm saved, and I can be spirit-filled. I, I can be sanctified. And, and you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of temptations. And I can submit to the authorities and suffer for His cause. I'm, I'm going to take this job. And if God decides to orchestrate your life after you've taken the step, He will providentially move you to the place where you need to be. I don't know how many of you have had jobs in the past, you know, all your life, but I, I'm sure for, for, well, maybe I shouldn't say I'm positive, but I'm pretty sure that most of you started off in a job that you're not there anymore. You've moved on or you moved around or, you know, you didn't start by flipping burgers and that's it. My first job was shoe shining. And if I was going to stay committed to my job because that was God's will, then I'd still be shoe shiny. I guess in a sense I am. I'm washing your feet. I'm shoe shiny. Uh, the, the, the feet of Jesus. But, you know, in, in whatever position you've ever had, God providentially moved you to where you needed to be when you are saved, spirit-filled. And if you are operating, let's say, for instance, well, you know, I, I think I want to be a bartender. I have a choice between a bartender or a salesman. I mean, being a bartender is not illegal. As a matter of fact, the consumption of alcohol is not illegal. Just don't do it while you're driving. But is it ethical? Does it go against your ethics? Nah, I'm okay with it. You know, I'm all right. But weren't you an alcoholic at one time? Well, yeah, you know, but that was a long time ago. Okay, well, maybe that's something that you might want to consider to not do. Because even though you may have all that self-will and self-power, but are you being spirit-filled? Can you? Will you? You know, that's just a very crazy example. But when God brings somebody into your life, 
and that person is as committed to Jesus Christ as much as you are. That's a good indication that God wants you guys to make a life together. You know, because people say, well, you know, this, this is God's will. And then they blame God. Well, it was God's fault. He's the one who brought her to me. It's your fault, God. That woman you gave me. Remember that story? It's God's fault. It's her fault. It's everybody's fault. It's a serpent's fault. No. And uh, that's what men have been doing since, blaming their wives. And wives continue to call their husbands a bunch of snakes. No, um, anyways. But when we understand... See, what Paul is operating here under is that, 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 so, that whole process. He's looking back. He's reflecting on his life. And he's looking at what has gone on and how he's moved forward. And, and you know, I, I know that I've been saved, Paul says. I was knocked off my horse. My whole life was changed around. I totally turned around and going in a whole different direction. And being spirit-filled is just who I am. That's what gives me the power and the ability to proclaim in spite of the stoning, in spite of the beatings, in spite of the shipwreck, in spite of all the illnesses and the sicknesses that I've gone through, in spite of everything that I... That Holy Spirit has given me the power to continue on. And God has been sanctifying my life through the whole process. I don't need anything else. All I need is Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to submit to the authorities. If they're going to arrest me, let them arrest me. If they're going to take me to prison, let them take me to prison. If they're going to decapitate me by the sword, then let the decapitation happen. Let the heads roll. And that's what he did. He submitted to the authorities. Just like Jesus. I pray that each one of us can do the same thing. This is just the beginning of Paul. I just wanted to share some things about what Paul's life is like. Because I think that some of us are kind of looking, okay, where's God's will in all this? Does God want me to go to this church? Does God want me to go into this job? Does God want me to move into this country, this home, or uh, this city? Well, you know, I believe God will bless it. And if he doesn't, he'll providentially move you around when you are, well, those five things again. And those are the challenges that Paul has given us today and the Word of God. Let me ask you to stand. When it comes to the will of God, there's a lot of confusion. Many people have bought books, did Bible studies. Uh, from other authors. But Father, when we look at your word, when we look at your will, and we look at what you've called us to do, it starts to make a little bit more sense that your will is totally different than my will. I know where I want to move. I know what job I want to have. I know what kind of vehicle I want to drive and which home to, to purchase. And, and I, I know whom to marry. But a lot of that is based upon my own selfish desire. I know that when I am uh, saved, I know that when I'm sanctified, when I'm spirit-filled, when I'm submissive, when I'm willing to suffer, and when I walk according to the spirit, not the flesh, that the next step I take, Lord, you will bless it because you will give me your desire for what I, needs to happen next. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us can Come to that conclusion on our own and realize through your word on what it is that we need to do next. So, Father, just thank you once again for your powerful word. 
and given us the ability to, to just be able to, to hear and listen and, and dissect and, and understand as we go over this message later on in the day, as we go over these verses and we apply them to our life, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen, amen and Amen. Thank you. Thank you.